In this podcast series, I'm meeting researchers who are uncovering the lost sounds of the past. Sound is very immersive, it's very atmospheric, and it seems like listening is quite different to looking. So a familiar sound from the past can transport you right back, just for a flash of a second. But what happens if we hear other people's pasts? Can we learn something about what life felt like for them? Today I talked to Professor Mark Smith, who's Director of the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina in the US. Professor Smith is a proponent of what's become known as sensory history. Sight tends to be prioritised in modern Western culture, but sensory historians pay attention to other senses in their work, touch, taste, smell and sound. Our lives are regulated by bells and tones that tell us what to attend to and when to start one task and stop another. And that last bell is a plantation bell from the southern states of the US. And, uh, you know, there is some affection for the sounds of, of an old plantation bell or a farm bell ringing. But as Mark's research with slave narrative shows, bells were installed as a kind of aggressive means to control enslaved people's time and labour. The sound punches its way into your ears um, and you become habituated to it in the sense that you kind of react involuntarily to the sound of the bell. It was the bell that made Mark aware of the importance of sound in any history of the American South. I was actually working on the history of clocks and watches as a, as a way to sort of, you know, the way that slave owners use time to regulate labour and control bodies. And it became very obvious to me that... Um, most plantations didn't have clocks, they had bells. And bells provide no real visual function, they provide an auditory one, especially over a large landscape where sound needs to travel in order to control labour. And so increasingly, um, I was working by default in a visualist aesthetic, and it became clear to me that this is not really very accurate as a way to understand um, the communication of time. And so from that, I, I trace the soundscapes and, and habits of hearing of, among capitalists and slave slaveholders, among slaves and slaveholders and workers, and then the Civil War itself. So that really, I, I suppose it was that small insight, no pun intended, um, about how time is auditory rather than exclusively visual that led me to take sound more seriously. Is there anything of special value when we think about past sounds. I mean, how does that add anything or how does it change things compared to how people have traditionally studied the past? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Abigail. I mean, I'd, I'd flip it round, really. Um, isn't it stunning that we haven't listened to the past? I mean, simply as people who exist in a multi-sensory universe, uh, why do why do we just look to eyewitnesses and not take earwitnesses seriously? So I suppose the inclusion of sound at a very basic level has a greater fidelity to the past than just seeing. Then secondly, there's a kind of intellectual and theoretical import in which by attending to what is heard and not 
just what is seen. We, we're writing against the conceits and imperatives of the Enlightenment, which stressed the preeminence of visuality. And I think that's a healthy thing. And then thirdly, um, what, a, what a more textured world. Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. We might have to begin that again. Okay. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. You were you were so ordered. You were you had firstly, you had secondly, and thirdly, and you still remembered what you were saying. I was about to get to finally. Um, I think you might have to redo thirdly. Okay. Thirdly, listening to the the past and rather listening to how people heard, it restores the texture of the past, right? Because if we have just a visualist aesthetic of the past and how well they saw, it's a very antiseptic, very surface understanding of what's going on. Um, so, for example, let me give you a particular example. When slaves or the enslaved escaped bondage, when they ran away, um, they didn't just look at the landscape, they listened to it. And they were very careful about how they, when they ran away. So running away during the winter, for example, was very, very dangerous, not just because the foliage wasn't as great, but because sound traveled farther. And so they would choose their time of year, not just on the, the visual landscape, but the auditory landscape. And if you really want to understand slave religion, for example, um, you can certainly listen to it, that's for sure. But there's also a quiet and silent aspect of slave religion that was outside of the earshot of the master class. So I think, in a way, by listening to other people listening, by trying to understand their appreciation of the soundscape and the habits of listening, you, you actually get a much deeper understanding of the human experience. Um, if we, you know, if we just pause for one obvious moment and say, what if we just looked at our present as we looked at the past? Wouldn't it be a very impoverished way of understanding the world? And I think that's really the, the, the thrust of sensory history generally, to restore some of the texture of the past that um, looking alone um, doesn't grant us access to. If you do want to understand 19th century America or the history of enslaved people there, and you want to think about sound, what does evidence look like in that case? Evidence looks like um, any evidence from a pre-recorded era, right? So, um, you know, diaries, letters, things like this. I mean, very rarely do I ever read something that doesn't have some sensory input besides sight. Um, and I, I don't think it's terribly difficult. People often think, oh, well, because sound's ephemeral, you know, you, you really must have access to a recorded piece of evidence in order to understand it. And I don't believe that at all. Um, you know, we sound becomes degraded from the first wax records, right? So how somebody heard a record in the initial instance and then 15 years later, that is very much contingent on context and the habits of listening at the time, which is why I think it's something of a fool's errand to attempt to recreate in some pure fashion the sounds of the past. I mean, Civil War reenactors do this, don't they? And they want to recreate the sounds of cannon. But, but the meaning of the sound of a cannon changes enormously over time. So context is really the key here. And what you're trying to do as the historian is to understand what people thought of what they heard at the time. Um, and that can be bequeathed to us through letters and diaries and all sorts of things that are the domain of traditional historians. Are you ever tempted, though, when you visit a place and you have a knowledge from these texts, do you not listen out for sounds or a landscape? Do you get tempted to sound an object, you know, to hear what they heard? 
Well, I, I, I do, um, and some of my colleagues do as well. Richard Rath is a very fine historian of, of um, sound, does that because he's a musician, and he, he'll, he'll often walk into a church and clap and, and listen for the reverberation. Um, I tend to do that less often, A, because I'm not skilled in that way, and B, because that really just tells me about what's interesting to me, doesn't it? Um, but it doesn't really grant me access to what somebody in 1650 thought about that sound. I, I suppose there's a larger issue here, isn't there, about the heritage industry and living museums and things like this. And fundamentally, I'm, I'm deeply suspicious of some of the claims that are either embedded or explicit in those those kind of living uh, historical museums that, that deploy sound as a way to educate their visitors. Um, I mean, I've actually I've consulted on this for a variety of places, and I always explain to them that it's very important that you explain fully to the visitors in print what they're hearing. What they're hearing is something that the meaning changed over time. And you can historicize these things, but I'm deeply suspicious of places that don't give give visitors that kind of apparatus to fully understand what they're hearing. Otherwise, it's just a kind of historical titillation, isn't it? Yeah, there's a risk that you you feel that you're experiencing what they did, but really you're just experiencing your own experience. It strikes me as a very modern conceit, something about modern habits of consumption that now extend to the past, and that... In a way, it's not really asking very much of visitors, is it? It's a kind of happy passive consumption. Oh, now I've experienced history, and I've heard it, and therefore I know it. And I'm just not sure that's really a very useful pedagogical way to teach the general public about what what the past was and what it meant to whom. So if we take one of the contexts that you've studied, can you tell me about the evidence that you used and the sounds... Um and what they meant for those people. I'm very interested in, in trying to access the experience of the enslaved. And you can do that in a variety of ways, um, but principally using slave narratives, which were either published at the time or after the Civil War. And, you know, it's just full of sound if you, if you, if you read them with, a, with an ear to what they're listening to. So people would talk about bells and whispers and shouts and rustles, all sorts of things that constitute the soundscape, but then, you know, you're under an obligation to weave into something that resembles a kind of historical narrative that captures the meaning of the sound to these folks. So slave narratives were very important to me. But then again, I would tell you travel journals are often very rewarding and full um, and the reason why is because travel journals, when people traveled from England to the American South or vice versa, they'd often comment on sounds and tastes and smells because they were new. But one has to be extremely careful with those because, A, I think it tells us a lot about what the traveler is experiencing sensorially, but it doesn't really give us access to what the average person who lived in that environment experienced sensorially every day. And that's because we become habituated to, to our senses, don't we? We become habituated to certain sounds, so much so that we don't really notice them after a while. Can you tell me some more about the slave narratives? I mean, you've mentioned some sounds like uh, bells and whispers and rustles. So are these memoirs or diaries or what, what kind of texts are they? So there are two forms of slave narratives. The, the first 
and there's you know only about a hundred or so of them, were narratives that were written by escaped slaves before the Civil War. So they would make it to Massachusetts, for example. Frederick Douglass is a very famous example. And they would either write or have somebody else write their, their experience of slavery. And they're very detailed. I mean, they're, they're about what, the, what it's like to live on a plantation. The, their audience were, was uh, abolitionists and the American people of the North. Um, and they were interested in what was slavery like. So they would narrate these things. Then there's a second set, a much bigger set of slave narratives. And these were interviews of former slaves conducted in the 1930s in the American South. Now, of course, temporarily, the 1930s is far removed from the 1860s when, when the Civil War abolished slavery. Um, but these folks were very old, um, and part of the Roosevelt New Deal project was the Federal Writers Project, in which unemployed intellectuals and journalists were sent around the South to interview a variety of people, some of whom were former slaves. And their job was to interview them about slavery, what it was like when they were very young. And there are all sorts of methodological problems with these narratives. But these interviews, read with care, and, and are an exceptionally useful resource for any historian of the American South, because they give you access to the voice of the enslaved or the formerly enslaved. And they can tell you what slavery was like. And part of what they say is about the sounds of slavery. Is there any evidence of ordinary daily life or were they probably primarily just telling extraordinary things like, you know, moments of escape or, or traumatic events? The slave narratives, I think their principal worth is their everydayness because the interviewers ask certain questions and lots of those questions were to do with a kind of daily life of plantation living and labour. Um, and of course, the bell was was really a fundamental part of that mundane daily life. And they talked about bells a great deal. How were they used? Uh, well, the bells would um, begin labour and end labour. And if you think about it, um, they were often indexed to watches and clocks. But of course, the people who had access to those watches and clocks were planters and not the enslaved because you couldn't possibly have an enslaved person with access to time, right? Their time was the master's time. And they were very careful. Masters were very careful not to give slaves uh, watches or clocks. Um, they didn't want to debate time as northern factory workers would and unions would. And this was time absolute. So the the traditional conceit about southern slavery and its working day is that it was sun up to sundown. But I, I, I don't believe that to be true. I think that's, a, that's just a happy phrase that people throw around. And the reason I don't believe it to be true is because of the plantation bell. And in actual fact, labor began before sunup, courtesy of a clock or a watch, which was then indexed to the ringing of the bell. And if you bear in mind that most plantations are very large places, masters wanted to get the, their enslaved workforce to the field being tilled or picked um, and it could be quite a way. So you actually had to get them up before sunup, and you could only do that with a clock and a bell to, to, to wake them up and to get them to the field in time for sunup. And that's pretty much how labor began on the plantation, and the bell was instrumental. 
And it was as instrumental on southern plantations as it was in northern and British factories. The plantation bell is the factory bell. And what you have here are very organized forms of labor that are ordered, they're, they're regulated by a kind of auditory cue. So the bell was a very powerful instrument in the Old South and, and in 19th century America generally. And listening to bells matters. And so some of these bells, presumably they still exist and still ring today? During the Civil War, lots of these bells, especially the big church bells, were melted down for cannon. So the, the bell, which was actually quite an aggressive form of acoustomology, they were reconstituted as weapons during the Civil War um, and lots of bells were lost. So now, to us, when we listen to a bell, it's probably fairly picturesque, isn't it? It is, and what we think of as romantic and sweet is actually very menacing um, in a different context. So the enslaved never heard plantation bells uh, as some kind of nostalgic conceit. They heard them as drivers of labour. And I suppose a special thing about sound as a means of controlling people... um, Sound travels, isn't it, a long way and it, it passes through walls and you can't turn away from it. Sound punches its way into your ears because you, you don't have ear lids. You kind of have to hear it, whereas sight, you know, you can just close your eyes or turn your head. Uh, sound, I think, is a much more sinister way of, of organising labour. Um, and you become habituated to it in the sense that it's almost a kind of... Um, Taylorism, isn't it? You know, you kind of react involuntarily to the sound of the bell. You see, you see this with school children all the time when the bell goes. What do they do? They run out. <laughs> they move. Their bodies are, are indexed to sound in a very real and visceral fashion. So we're getting some sense of what plantation bells meant, how intrusive they are, how controlling they are. Now, um, amateurs who are just interested in the past or in history, you know, they're, they're probably quite well-versed in what that might uh, they might look at. So they know to look at architecture or, you know, the remains of industrial buildings or photos or whatever. But how might an amateur historian find out about the sounds of the past? Uh, I, would, I would recommend that you reread the most familiar text to you with, a, with an ear to the text. And that can be from a novel, it can be from any source that you're really familiar with. Um, you know, reread Dickens with an ear to Dickens, and you'll find it's just full of sound or hardy or, or anything that, you know, somebody in school is probably taught. Um, you know, reread it with an ear, and you'll find that it's just full of sound and noises, and uh, it's, you will be amazed at how straightforward it is. You'll find it if you're listening for it. So there's clearly information about the sounds of the past all over the place if you if you just look for them. Uh, although I, I think in this programme we did come kind of close to Mark calling me a fool on a fool's errand because uh, I am recreating sounds and I, I do like the idea of, of experiencing something of the past. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily a waste of time and I, I don't suppose Mark does completely either. There's, there's two things having talked to him that I think is interesting. One is that, you know, really, if you experience it, you try to experience the sound through kind of recreating sound and thinking about it. You're like the travellers that he talked about with Traveller's Diaries. You're a kind of time traveller. And you're, you're not understanding the sounds as the people, the locals do, but you, you do get a fresh perspective. You see things and hear things that they would not have heard. And that's really interesting. 
Um, but in a sense, I think I do also want to uh, understand that feeling and feel that connection with people who experienced the sounds as they experienced them at the time. And for that, you have to have, Mark's right, some information about the meaning that sounds had at that time for those people. And of course, then all people would not have experienced sounds in the same way at any time. And today's uh, subject is obviously, you know, really a stark example of how divided experiences could be. So plantation bells would have sounded very different to people whose lives were controlled by them. And for those uh, for whom, you know, they just happened in the distance and they, they kind of just meant more money going in the bank, I suppose. Past Sounds is written, presented and produced by me, Abigail Wincott. Thanks to my interviewee, Professor Mark Smith. Sound effects by Consto, David Sutton, S by Andy G and Pushkin and music by Silicon Transmitter. <laughs>